You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. edition of the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball coming to you for the final time in the month of april in 2022 my name is tyler mon and in new york city all alone is benjamin hill hi ben hi tyler and you did give the appropriate uh sort of sad sounding somber uh, tone. of being all alone i am all alone in a conference room known in the office it's officially known this is its name when you book it the huddle room Ah. But I have no one to huddle with. I am just huddling alone. Very football term for the headquarters of Major League Baseball. Yeah. What, 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 would, what would the a better baseball term be for this room? A yeah, you can't room? really call it like a conference room, yeah, like a mound conference. conference. Like that doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, I guess huddle kind of works. <laughs> they, do they huddle in the, maybe like in the bullpen, there's like a huddle, pregame huddle. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's lots of huddling in baseball, even if the word is far more associated with a, a football huddle. Um I'm saying the word huddle too many times, and now it's starting to sound like a word that's not semantic satiation. (laughs) (laughs) I learned that from Ted Lasso, just like anybody else who uh, just heard me say that term. Uh, Well, yeah, so no Sam Dykstra uh, on this opening segment this week. No Sam for our interview. Sam is uh, in transit, I believe, as of right now to Somerset, where he is going to be taking part in the Pipeline Game of the Month. Uh, broadcast on MILB.TV and MLB.TV. And uh, we'll catch up with Sam here in a little bit. He'll explain what's going on in Somerset this evening. And by the time you all hear this tomorrow, uh, that'll be in the past. So it'll do you no good. But next month, you can be sure to tune in uh, to the Pipeline Game of the Month. And um, we're going to dive into some fun stuff on this week's episode of the show before the show. Thanks for hanging out with us uh, wherever you are. You can get in touch with us podcast at MILB.com. Ben is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Uh, I am at Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra you can find at Sam Dykstra MILB. And uh, we've got some good stuff to talk about. Coming up in a little bit, we will catch up with Andy Dunn, the president of the Vancouver Canadians who are once more Canadian and back in Vancouver uh, for the first time in three years. The Vancouver Canadians closed their 2019 season uh, at Nat Bailey Stadium in Vancouver, and they did not see that ballpark again until this past week uh, when they finally got clearance to return and play a normal season uh, in Vancouver. I guess it's anything but a normal season. That's a former short season club that is now a full season high A team and uh, a really fun conversation with Andy coming up about one of the best stories and storylines in minor league baseball this year. Um, but we've got some other stuff to dive into on this week's episode, and we are going to kick things off with a, a fun story that Ben had uh, on the site at MILB.com. We are already into Copa de la Diversión season here in 2022. I know we had the uh, initial rollout of a Copa game the first weekend of the MILB season. Hillsboro, uh, the Sonia Doris took to the field in Hillsboro, so we've had Copa games all across the minors. And Copa team names and identities uh, have fallen into a bunch of different diverse and fun and awesome categories. One that has really popped up a lot across the minor leagues are Luchadores-inspired team names and identities for Copa de la Diversión, MILB's uh, Hispanic and Latinx Outreach Initiative. And Ben, you got to put together a story about all of the different fighting blank 
sort of uh, identities across the minors. I know uh, Fort Wayne, the Manzanas, uh, we've got avocados. Uh, we've got a bunch of other fighting things. Uh, a squirrel who is a Luchadoras uh, wrestler. Give us the the lowdown on some of the best identities in the minors when it comes to Luchadoras inspired themes. Yeah, I mean, there's 85 teams participating in Copa and six, a not unsizable portion have Luchadores identities, um, you know, often with, you know, wrestling and, and Luchadores, that's, a, you know, Mexican wrestling, very popular in Mexico. And, you know, they wear masks, they're high flying acrobatics. So that imagery has been adopted all over the minor leagues. Uh, the one Luchador themed Luchadores themed team debuting in 2022 is Fort Wayne, the Manzanas. Luchadores, the Fighting Apples, and that is a riff on you know their primary identity, they're the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, but there are Tin Caps because Johnny Appleseed lived and died in Fort Wayne, and um, you know that's what he wore on his head allegedly, a tin cap. But now they spun off that to a Fighting Apples Luchador identity, and that will be debuting on August fifth. But there's other teams uh, of that nature in Hudson Valley, Reading, um, down east, North Carolina, Kinston. Uh, Sacramento, the Dorados, and the Richmond Flying Squirrels. Um, so it's interesting to see, um, you know, how how much this uh, motif has resonated. And in putting this article article together, you know, there's 85 teams in Copa, as I said. And sometimes, you know, looking at so many different identities, it's easy to kind of gloss over some of the specifics. But the Reading Luchadores um, is a really great logo. And I know a lot of people listening to this love logos, love merch, love hats. Um, it's a really cool logo with a lot of symbolism uh, incorporated throughout. I linked to a video the team produced in the story explaining some of it, but the bridge of the, um, the, the primary logo is like a wrestler, a luchador, a mask. And like the bridge of the nose is the Reading Pagoda, uh, which is an iconic landmark building in Reading, Pennsylvania. And emanating from the pagoda are 23 rays of light uh, representing every Latin American country and uh, Puerto Rico. Then there's other um, you know, baseball references in the logo. Uh, there's musical references. There's other uh, local architectural landmark references. And so for those of you who like to look at a logo and try to parse it all out and find all the hidden stuff, uh, you can't do better than the uh, Reading Luchadores. That is a really cool one. And the story is at MILB.com right now. I do remember doing a game in Reading back when I was in AA as a radio guy, and I knew nothing about the Pagoda, but you can see it from baseball town, the home of the, the Reading fight and fills. And, uh, I remember thinking, what, what is that? And, uh, and doing some research and it is a really cool building with a really cool history and, uh, a great logo. And the Luchadores story of course is up at MILB.com right now. Um, those are the Copa de la Diversión alternate identities. We've got another alternate identity, uh, that has popped up on the minor league landscape that is going to require some explaining and it is explained in the latest edition of Ben's newsletter, which will be out later today. We're recording on Thursday the 28th. Uh, what's going on with this Wichita identity? What is a turbo tub? Yeah, well, first of all, subscribe to my newsletter if you have not already. Um, I wish I could give you a, a succinct link to do so, uh, but there's a newsletter registration page on MILB.com. Get in touch with me on Twitter at Ben's Biz or email me Benjamin.Hill at MLB.com if you can't figure anything out. Uh, I want to make it as community oriented as possible and as fun and rollicking and riveting as possible. Um, so please read it. Please subscribe and please get in touch uh, about anything in the newsletter or just to make sure you're subscribed. And yes, in this week's newsletter, number three of Ben's Biz Beat, the Ben's Biz Beat, uh, 
Um, I'm leading off with the Wichita Turbo Tubs, a new alternate identity that the team announced. They're going to be suiting up as the Turbo Tubs uh, every Thursday for the remainder of the season. And, you know, the team put out a press release, of course, uh, when they announced that they were the Turbo Tubs. But it was still, when I read it, I was still like, I still don't really quite understand all of this. So in the newsletter, I did my best, um, you know, self-directed explainer of what a Wichita Turbo Tub is. And so let's start with the tub, the tub in question. I mean, it's a jet-propelled tub. And um, the tub is because Wichita, which is right on the Arkansas River, hosts annual or used to host annual tub races every single year as part of its uh, 10-day river fest. And these tub races, which were discontinued in 2008, they featured like antique porcelain bathtubs, you know, mounted on rafts or flotation devices. And these tub racers would race along the river. So turbo tubs is first and foremost, a reference to tub racing on the Arkansas river. I mean, who knew? I say this all the time, but you always learn so much about minor league baseball um, or about America just by uh, covering minor league baseball, by reading about minor league baseball. So tub races on the Arkansas river are, you know, the primary, um, you know, inspiration behind the turbo tub identity, but then on the hat and on the Jersey sleeves, uh, the turbo tub in question is being piloted by a troll. And again, it's like, okay, now you have a troll in the mix. And the team just said, oh, near the keeper of the plane statue, um, you know, the, it, there's a, the troll references stories we all heard growing up in the folkloric element. And I was like, okay, why did you people of Wichita hear stories about trolls and like what is going on? And I still don't understand all of it, but the keeper of the plains is a huge steel structure, a huge statue monument at the intersection of the big and little Arkansas rivers. And somewhere near the keeper of the plains is a troll statue, but you have to look for it because this troll statue is located underneath a grate and chained up. <laughs> You can go online and find pictures of the actual troll, but it's pretty, um, a little bit disturbing. Wow. So the, yeah, that sounds really creepy. Yeah. So the Wichita turbo tubs, the turbo tubs are piloted by a troll. And so this identity is the mixture of discontinued tub racing on the Arkansas river and a really bizarre statue located near the keeper of the plains <laughs> featuring a chained up troll who lives or is imprisoned <laughs> underneath a grate. And what's what we call this is what we call a deep cut. This is uh, this takes a lot of explanation. I I love it for and I had people from Wichita uh, in my Twitter mentions talking about how cool they thought it was because it tied together all these things that they were aware of. I love that. Uh, it's it's something that yeah, as two of us who are not from Wichita uh, are making very obvious. You, it requires a lot of explaining if you're not in on it. But man, I think that's so cool for you know kind of the local pride of people who are from that area and Wichita is a place with a, with a really deep baseball history and to have a, a baseball team that honors its own civic history. I'm reading Satchel Paige's autobiography right now. He talks about the, the national baseball Congress uh, tournament that was held in Wichita. And uh, he makes reference to Wichita as being a baseball town, unlike any you've ever seen uh, or something along those lines. And um, so I love stuff like this hyper local stuff. It might be confusing to people outside of uh, certain communities, but I think that's what makes these hats and logos and identities, what they are. It's what, it's what makes them so great. Yeah. And I, I think the tub races started after Satchel's time, but 
for some reason I can just see Satchel as part of his barnstorming, you know, throwing throwing baseball throwing a tub of, on the river off a, off a river tub and <laughs> hitting his targets it just seems so bizarrely quintessentially american it just it just all makes sense in a way that doesn't make any sense at all it's perfect and uh again as ben noted you can subscribe to the newsletter at milb.com via the newsletter registration page and get in touch with ben uh to make sure that you are subscribed uh for the ben's biz beat and uh with that we're going to move to the interview which i teased a little bit ago but um ben you set this up this is a really cool story it's a really cool conversation uh give us the the breakdown of what's coming up with andy dunn yeah you mentioned it earlier and we'll mention it again in the intro so we're just going to talk to andy dunn vancouver canadians president about the longest gap between home openers in modern minor league baseball history, maybe all of minor league, but no, not all of minor league baseball history. We have to account for world war two, but let's just say almost certainly the longest gap between home openers in minor league baseball's post world war two history. And uh, we'll get into the specifics of that and what a special place Vancouver is to see a baseball game. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. The Vancouver Canadians had their home opener on April 19th, one of the latest home openers of this minor league baseball season. But that doesn't begin to explain uh, just how long Vancouver Canadians fans waited for opening day. It had been almost 1,000 days since the last time the team played in Vancouver after the cancellation of the 2020 season and then continued uh, COVID issues in 2021 and uh, the border being closed and all sorts of logistical hassles. The team played in Hillsborough, Hillsborough, Oregon last year. And now finally, they are back. And here to talk about being back, finally, the Vancouver Canadians in Canada is Vancouver Canadians President Andy Dunn. Thanks for being here with us today, Andy. Oh, Ben's good seeing you. And uh, like I said, it's been a long time since we've seen each other. And I know your your travels have been shut down a little bit or slowed down. Obviously, our home dates were slowed down quite a bit, but it's it's great to catch up and it's great to be playing baseball back in Vancouver. Yeah, absolutely. Great talking to you. And um, it's been way too long since I've been to Vancouver and that Bailey Stadium. But truly, not just saying this because uh, you're the guest right now, but truly one of my favorite uh, ballpark environments and all of minor league baseball an historic facility, uh, great setting, great views, um, really great fan base and obviously a huge market. And that market uh, missed a lot of baseball uh, for a lot of years, uh, for several years. And so if you can just take me through what it was like uh, for that home opener 2022 after what was it? 960 some days to finally play baseball again. 
I think it was 963 days or 967 days. I mean, who's counting two or three, four days? But honestly, it was, and again, I've been fortunate to be through a number of opening days in different markets, different levels, but I've never seen something so emotional. It was, I mean, just to see our fans who, you know, stayed with us and had tickets and rolled over tickets and purchased tickets to walk into the building I mean, and to understand Vancouver and Nat Bailey. I've never been anywhere that there's such, such affinity regarding a building. I mean, it really is. And I tell people this all the time. It's, it's like Wrigley Field of minor league baseball. And no one ever stops me and yells at me, why didn't you guys bunt in the eighth? Everybody stops me and wants to tell me a story about 25 years ago, 30 years ago. You know, I took my grandson or my granddaughter, or my grandfather used to take me to the ball game. Everybody's got a story about going to Nat Bailey. Um, but when we open the doors and people are walking in and you could literally see people walking around with tears in their eyes. It was one of the most unique, genuine, heartfelt things I'd ever seen. And it, it really took me back two or three steps. And, you know, you look at the night and, you know, you worry about, you know, how your, how's your F&B going to operate on your first night? How's parking going to do? How's your staff going to, uh, new staff, how are they going to operate with in-game and servicing and everything else? But on that one night, it was just so much bigger than that. It was just nobody cared about anything other than being in the building having their seat, seeing people they hadn't seen in a couple of years, because everybody knows these, these ballparks turn into part of people's personalities. It, it turns into almost like a church type setting where you look forward to seeing everybody all the time, but to see everybody and the emotion and just the smiles, it was, it was more than a game that night. It was, it was a homecoming and it was really, really something special. Yeah. And it was so emotional because, um, you know, in large part because it had been so long, uh, without baseball, I mean, the entire industry went through 2020, and then uh, you had a more specific issue in 2021, um, having to play games, uh, you know, as, as an away team, essentially the whole season. Um, what was that like navigating that that period just with, uh, you know, logistically with staffing, with staying active in a community when you're not playing baseball? Um, I mean, I know that's, uh, there's a lot, a lot of tangents you could go on with something like that, but um, if you could just kind of explain what it was like from an operational perspective to get through this. Well, it started oh, in the, early in the fall of 2020, um, having seen what our parent club Toronto had gone through when, you know, we were shut down in 2020 as the minor leagues, but the big league clubs are going to try to play and, and just watching what our parent club was going through, trying to find a place to play. I mean, they had challenges. They were trying to go to Pittsburgh and a couple other places, Baltimore, uh, potentially Tampa Bay, and we're having trouble finding a place to play outside of TD Park at the spring training complex. And so when we, we started looking at all this, I remember going to Jay Kerr, our chairman, and I said, listen, we got we to get on this sooner than later because, you know, knowing the operational aspects. And so we called, we talked to two or three people in our league. And, you know, the greatest part about our, our league and the operators within our league is their willingness to help us out. Um, so we ended up looking at a number of scenarios, you know, field, clubhouses, travel, what I was going to go into. Decided to go to Hillsboro and Mike McMurray and his lovely wife, Laura, and K.O. Wambacher, who are all dear friends, welcomed us with open arms. And we went down there strictly because we knew the facility. We knew, you know, you're not going to find many facilities that have more than two clubhouse situations. 
we knew Hillsboro did with the adjacent football stadium. We could set up shop and have our own clubhouse for the entirety of the season. It really cut down on a lot of our travel. And so we ended up going to Hillsboro. And, you know, couldn't ask for a better situation uh, in, in, a, in a very tough situation, you know, because they have the football stadium. And the one thing we needed last year was some of the COVID protocols with space, outdoor space. We were able to set up weight rooms, dining halls, a lot of stuff outside. The city of Hillsborough was tremendous to work with. And, you know, we, we had as good a situation as we could. But again, you know, crowds were very limited. I mean, Hillsborough was used to having a 38-game home schedule, which they had had since they had moved from Yakima. So now, last year, the Hops have gone to a 60-game home schedule. Now the Vancouver Canadians come in and drop another 60. So they're going from 38 to 120 home dates. The market was a little, whoa, this is a, this is a lot of baseball. And the other part is our fans in Vancouver, I know they would have come down for weekends and things like that, but they couldn't even cross the border. But it was tough. I mean, we went down with the staff of three. It was Stephanie Ellis, our assistant general manager, and Tom Backemeyer, who was our executive vice president, and myself went down. We went down with the staff of three, ran a 60-game schedule, uh, working remotely, um, and just had a summer that you'll never, you'll never forget and made the most of it. I can't commend our coaching staff and our players. They just grinded through it. There was never anybody complaining about lack of crowd, this, that, and the other. Um, but everybody understood the importance last year was to get pitchers innings and get batters at bats. And it was that simple because, you know, you know, we want to do all these things and, you know, you want to generate revenue and ticket sales. But last year it was about developing players on our behalf. And, uh, you know, we took one for the organization and everybody understood that. But again, if you looked at the Jays whole situation last year, yet Buffalo was, was taken to a different market. So I think we had high A, the last year, I mean, Loe with Dunedin, Trenton ended up picking up Buffalo. So you had three three clubs displaced within the organization. So Charlie Wilson and everybody in the in the minor league offices did a tremendous job. And it was it was a tough year not only for us in Vancouver, but for the for the Blue Jay affiliates uh, all the way around. Andy, Ben touched on this a second ago, um, but you guys are faced with such a unique and tough challenge last year in that you are playing games away from your market and you're in a, a big and dynamic market. And, uh, you know, you've got an NHL team, you've got a CFL team to keep in touch with your fan base while you were unable to play games in Vancouver for two straight years. What was the community outreach like uh, for you guys as a, as a front office, as an organization to just kind of remind people like, hey, we're going to be back here? It was interesting um, because Vancouver was locked down in a situation where we couldn't do a lot of community engagement. A lot of the businesses were still closed. A lot of the youth programs were still shut down. So most everything we did was, you know, we had live, with, we had taped anthems every night in Hillsborough where our fans would come out and perform and we would use their tape situation. We would do the same thing with virtual first pitches and it was really important last year, we hired a, a new broadcaster, Tyler Zickel. And Tyler is a wonderful young guy, a very talented guy. And I kept sitting down with him. I said, you don't understand how, this is probably the most important radio broadcast year of your life on behalf of the organization. because It's our only engagement back home. And our numbers on the radio were fantastic. We knew people were turning in. And I told Tyler, I said, you don't realize your audience is a lot bigger than anywhere you've ever been. You've never even seen the market. You've not met anybody, hasn't met a producer, hasn't met a board up, hasn't met anyone. 
But I said, I need you this year to really step up and do it right because you are our only message this year to keep us alive and keep fans engaged. And he did a tremendous job. And, you know, Tyler, he's with us now up in Vancouver. Um, but, you know, from a lot of things, it was, it was that simple. We just have to keep people engaged through the broadcast and make sure we're doing all we can do to just keep baseball alive north of the border. I'm really glad you brought up Tyler because I was going to ask you about the situation with having a, a broadcaster who is calling games for a team in a city where he hasn't even gotten a chance to check out the ballpark, hasn't gotten a chance to meet his his fan base or anybody that he interacts with. And um, he, I, I got to follow his journey last year and see the way that Hillsboro really opened, like you said, with, with arms wide open for you guys. And, you know, from the, the grounds crew, putting the Canadians logo behind home plate uh, to the anthems, like you talked about, to just creating a space where your franchise was allowed to operate, where even though you're sort of roommates with another team, I feel like they tried to make it as much home for you as possible. Um, and Tyler got to be emblematic of that. And what did that mean for you guys when you got a chance to, to see, you know, something just as simple as your logo on the field there? Um, it's, it's so challenging. There's no other organization who's having to deal with it the way you guys are. What did that mean for you guys to have that support from Hillsborough? You know, the, the city leadership was tremendous. I think one of the first phone calls I got when we got to Hillsborough was from the mayor. And the mayor could not be a bigger baseball fan, could not be a better human being. I think the first time Tom and I met him, we were actually, we went out to have lunch and the mayor came over and joined us and watched the first round of March Madness with us. So we sat around and, uh, you know, had lunch and got to know each other. But coming out to the games, Mike and Laura McMurray, the owner of the Hops, might have missed six Canadians games all year. Just tremendous people. The grounds guys working for the Parks and Rec Department. I remember talking to Tom Backmeyer and I said, whatever we do, load them up with seas gear load that i want pullovers and hoodies and jackets and we got to get buy-in from all these guys and and they did and it's funny i mean last night we're playing in hillsborough and one of the groundskeepers sent me a photo of him wearing a seas shirt uh while he's wor- working in hillsborough uh during a seas the road game and i, I sent him a note back said you might want to change shirts. This might not be good for job security, but we certainly appreciate the support. But, you know, our friends, KL, and the entire front office of the Hops were fantastic to deal with. And, you know, we did, we did all we could do to make the best of a good of a tough situation. I mean, we tried to stay out of the Hops way. One of the things we made sure we weren't doing was just ticket discounts. And we weren't blowing out $5 tickets. We wanted to make sure that we were able to maintain integrity with what the Hops were trying to do locally as well. So we'd never cut ticket prices on them or things like that. Um, didn't try to saturate with market, with seize advertising and promotions. We kind of knew our knew our place and knew our role. And we were just, you know, we're going to do what, all we could do to be supportive, just have a place to play. Andy, you touched on this earlier, but in addition to all this, uh, you know, these times of transition, um, you know, 2021 was the first time in over 20 years that the Canadians were a full season team or that Vancouver had a full season minor league team. And now here opening the season in 2022, it's the first time since I believe you had said uh, earlier 1999 uh, that Vancouver has full season minor league baseball. So what's it like now um, to finally get going again, but also be doing it in the months of April and May for the first time in a long time? You know, we've got our first home stand in, and, but again, we're facing some of the challenges that every market faces in April. Uh, April baseball is tough. It really is. I mean, one of the good things is, is we, we developed a market 
that we've created ticket scarcity within the market. So the summer months have been hard to get tickets to. Um, you know, we have more tickets, more opportunities, more nights for people to come out and rent suites and have barbecues and group activities. Because traditionally, by April of our June season, traditionally, we'd be sold out for the season. Well, um, you know, but right now, everybody's coming off COVID. Corporate communities aren't really engaging as much groups right away as they have traditionally. Uh, we have some inventory, which is, you know, good and bad. So we're basically just spending our time just making sure the market understands we do have April baseball, we do have May baseball. It does start earlier and people have responded tremendously. I mean, our season ticket base is up. Our group numbers are up just because of the number of openings that we have. And, uh, you know, we'll get through April, we'll get through May and we expect to have a massive summer. And, uh, but again, you know, the old saying, there's no place like home uh, really rings through for everybody, both our players as well as our front office and our fans up in Vancouver. Andy, we'll close this interview kind of along lines of where it started, um, you know, talking about Nat Bailey Stadium being such a special place and meaning to so meaning so much to so many in the community. And uh, I know a lot of the people listening to this podcast uh, love to do their own minor league travels and Vancouver is always a recommended de- destination. Uh, so what are some of the aspects of the Vancouver Canadians experience that you think are the most unique and memorable? Well, I, I love the fact that, you know, we created our own in-house race with the sushi the sushi races you know we, we we try to get people not to bet on the sushi races at the ballpark but uh, it still goes on but the sushi races are great the dancing is great some of the food items are unique our three foot hot dog is something that's been tremendous for us at the ballpark our home plate pretzel which is the size of a large pizza is kind of fun uh just the end game you know we do a lot of things we stay off the field we don't do an awful lot of promotions on the field we run it like more like a major league uh, game would take place because we're in a major league market. You don't hardly ever hear us say the term minor league because we're in a major league market. We're not the minor league baseball team in the market. We're the baseball team in the market. And we leave it at that. Um, but again, it's just a unique, special place. And when you walk in the doors, you literally feel like you're in 1965. And, but you know, it's a clean building. It's an older building. And we all know, understand at least all the operators who listen to these podcasts know Older buildings are great. There's nothing wrong with an old building when it's clean. And that's something we take great pride in. But they're hard to maintain. They're hard to operate. They're expensive to operate. So, but again, just coming in, you have to make time to at least pay one visit to Nat Bailey. And I say it locally in Vancouver all the time. To me, Nat Bailey is the second most iconic place in all of Vancouver behind Stanley Park. And, um, but again, it's just, it's an unbelievable setting to watch a ball game. And it's something that, you know, once you go, you'll always have it on your on your map and on your list when you do travel back through Vancouver. Yeah, as you were talking, I had a flashback to one of my favorite memories from visiting, which was just that. I would say, having been to a lot of a lot of ballparks, a lot of time um, singing the seventh inning stretch, it can be pretty lackluster. And I was reminded of being in Vancouver and the way those fans sang and just that kind of old fashioned um, you know, connection to the game. And I remember just feeling perhaps not on the verge of tears, but just feeling so just almost giddy about just the level of connection uh, that the fans had. Yeah. Well, it's funny. My favorite part of the night every night is when we do both anthems, you know, we'll start with the U S anthem and they go to the Canadian anthem and people in Vancouver just love to sing. They love to sing the anthems. And at that time we hold the ushers hold 
the walkways from the concourse into the stadium and they hold them because they want people to stand, stand at attention. But every night when the songs are over, I look at uh, the entrances from the concourse and it's like a subway entrance when, fan, when people are getting off in, in New York City. It's unbelievable. People are just flooding through. And to me, that's my favorite night of the year that people are here, the anthems are done, everybody's finding their seat and let's sit down and enjoy a game. And that's, to me, the best part of the night. Well, there you have it. Uh, Vancouver Canadians, Nap Bailey Stadium, a special place, a special season, finally back in Canada where they belong. Get to a game, if at all possible, cross the border and uh, have a really memorable baseball experience. Uh, Andy Dunn, president of the Vancouver Canadians, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and uh, best of luck the rest of the season. Thanks, Ben, and we certainly look forward to your next visit up north. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are uh, we're hitting the time machine for segment number three on this week's episode of the show before the show. Travel back with us all the way to the day before we recorded everything else in this episode. Sam Dykstra joins the show. Hello, Sam. How are things in Somerset where you are currently as we're recording the show that people are listening to? I know, yeah. That when when you guys are listening to this, I will be in New Jersey. I am currently in New York, but let's pretend I, uh, I'm staying overnight in New Jersey for this uh, game that is one hour from my house. But yeah, no, uh, I'm sorry that I missed the first segment with you and Ben and the interview segment this week. Uh, I am out on assignment doing the MLB Pipeline Game of the Month, this fun new feature we have over there on the site. Um, I'm going to be covering the Somerset-Portland game uh, on Anthony Volpe's 21st birthday. Uh, so that'll be exciting to be with him and to talk to him on that day and uh, see how things are going with him and his introduction to A. But uh, yeah, because of that, I have to record a day early. So here so you and I are on Wednesday. Here we are on Wednesday. Uh, here Ben and I were on Thursday. It's all kinds of uh, madness in the podcasting world for the pipeline game of the month. Uh, for those interested, give us the parameters of what the pipeline game of the month is going to be. Yeah, that's a, that's, we should do that. Um, so after, after the game has happened, you guys are going to be hearing this on Friday or over the weekend, but typically one game a month, uh, we will be going to a game that is on MILB TV. That game will also be on MLB TV. So if you have a subscription over there, it's your opportunity to watch minor league baseball. Um, but we're going to really be blowing out, blowing out the game as an event. There's a lots of lots of different things. It's going to depend on the game, the, the day, what's going on, who the players are, etc. Um, one, a few things I will be doing uh, for the the first MLB Pipeline game of the month. I'm going to be doing a ballpark tour on Instagram Live of TD Bank Ballpark there in Somerset. Um, I will be doing a pregame Instagram live interview with Anthony Volpe on his 21st birthday. Lots to get into with that. We will be turning that into a Q&A uh, for MLB.com. So check back in on that. I'll, I'll be transcribing that interview, putting it up on the site. We'll have video clips, et cetera. One thing I'm hoping to get done, well, which, you know, knock on wood, 
is a pitching tutorial with one of the top pitching prospects in the Yankee system. I'm 95% sure who I will be doing that with, but as we're sitting here on Wednesday, don't have full confirmation, so I don't want to spoil it, but I will be doing it with somebody from the Yankee system. Um, a lot of promising arms on that Somerset team will be going through his repertoire, what works, what works best, how he throws it, how it's developed, how his delivery has developed. It's really like a self-scouting mission. And then I will be on the broadcast. Um, and that's how hopefully all of these will go, is that either myself, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, whoever's in town for these MLB pipeline games in the month uh, will be on the broadcast as well. So you're, it'll be another opportunity to hear us speak about some of the top prospects in the game, commentate on the game as it's going along. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. And I'm really excited to get us going here on Thursday. So let's dive into our three strikes for this week's episode of the show before the show. I'm just bringing it back as the title of this segment. Um, we are going to talk about three big topics in minor league baseball this week, and we're going to kick things off with a pair of 14 strikeout performances for the Cleveland Guardians prospect Daniel Espino and the Philadelphia Phillies prospect Andrew Painter, who both K'd 14 batters over five innings uh, on the same night earlier this week. Uh, we don't see a ton of strikeout performances that reach the mid double digits in the minor leagues. We really don't see them in April. Uh, and we got to see two on one night because baseball is weird that way. Um, Andrew Painter, I believe said that he pretty much just threw two pitches the entire night. Uh, Daniel Espino was lights out throughout his night. Sam tells about those two stories. Yeah, that was insane. Just following that on Saturday, um, you know, talking to some folks who were working for us for a, for pipeline and um, some of the other folks that were just, you know, in the industry trying to figure out what was going on. And it was like, how often do you see 14 strikeouts in five innings? And it's like rarely, if ever, and we were trying to scramble to see when the last time that's happened in history. And it's like, Oh, it actually happened also today. Um, it's, it's just so rare that you ever see that. Like you were saying, Tyler, especially in April when guys are on innings limits, pitch limits, you don't want to see them going deep into games. Both of these guys only lasted five innings, but of those 15 outs, 14 were strikeouts. It was really, really killer. You were talking about Andrew Painter, who based on the line had the better start of the night. He only gave up one hit, had no walks. Again, 14 strikeouts. I'm going to keep saying that over and over. Um, but based off the stat cast data that we get for Florida State League games, selects Florida State League games, pretty much everyone that isn't played in Daytona, um, his stuff was killer as well. Most of his swings and misses were coming on the four seam fastball, which averaged 97.4 miles an hour. He topped out at 99.8 miles an hour. Um, he's certainly a tall pitcher. It's easy gas. It comes out of his hand really easy. He's another one of those guys who, you know, it almost looks like he's kind of handing the ball to the catcher. Uh, he's standing at six foot seven. The fact that he didn't have any walks for somebody of that height is really astonishing. Uh, but you mentioned he threw two pitches. The other one was a slider. Um, he got 10 swings on that. Five of them were swings and misses, almost equal. So that's a 50 swing and miss rate, 50% uh, swing and miss rate. The fastball was 56%. Guys on the other side were just not hitting him whatsoever. They couldn't touch him. Uh, it seems like he was working fastballs up, sliders down and away. That combination of velo and movement um, really, really worked well at the low A level. Uh, Daniel Espino, you could say it was more impressive because it came against double A bats. Um, from a line perspective, it wasn't quite as nice. He gave up two earned runs on three hits, also didn't walk a batter. 
uh, gave up a home run to Gunnar Henderson, another top 100 prospect. Nothing really wrong with that. But again, 14 strikeouts in five innings. Um, I remember Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline talking with him, and he got one of Espino's starts in spring and said it was the talk of his spring training in Arizona. Um, it just seemed like scouts were flocking to see Espino. Uh, in that game, he was touching 102 uh, with his fastball. He was throwing a slider that is getting some comparisons to Jacob deGrom because it's throwing in the low 90s as a slider. You could kind of make the case that it's more of a cutter, but still it's working really well coming off that triple digit fastball. Uh, it sounds like that was working just as well at Akron. We're getting to the point here and I don't want to, you know, inflate a guy too much this early. We're recording this on April 27th. The first month of the season isn't out yet, but based on what we were hearing in the spring, based on what we're seeing now at Akron, uh, again, you know, he's sitting here right now, 30 strikeouts and 13 and two thirds innings to start the year. Daniel Espino is in that conversation with Grayson Rodriguez as the top pitching prospect in baseball. It's getting insane. Um, obviously, double A is when you start to feel it, when guys start to think about the major leagues. A few more starts like this. He's probably going to Columbus, but he also could be seeing Cleveland by the middle of the year. And if that AL Central race is as open as it could be with all the injuries we're seeing for the White Sox, and if the Guardians really want to lean into pitching being their strength and, and um, you know, finding some other pieces on the offensive side. Espino could be ready by, by July, if not sooner. It's, it's insane stuff um, that is really working right now at double A level and probably should be seeing the triple A level within a few weeks, if not sooner. That was some pretty cool stuff this week. Uh, we go from pitching prospects to a hitting prospect for strike two. Uh, Michael Bush in the Los Angeles Dodgers organization as the Dodgers just continue churning out anybody who is at the top end of that system, even guys who are at the back end of that system. Jacob Amaya, his teammate, has been one of the most hotly discussed prospects uh, as of the last couple of weeks in minor league baseball. But the third-ranked prospect in that Dodgers system, Michael Bush, uh, was already having a very good season. He has turned his season uh, to an extremely good one over the last week plus. He had two home runs through his first 10 games this year. He's now got six over his last seven games. Uh, the slash line sits as of right now at 305, 468, 746. He's got a slugging percentage that some guys would be happy with as an OPS. Um, some really impressive stuff from Michael Bush. Have you heard anything as to the keys to what has flipped this power switch for him? It's such a, a huge additional element now for Michael Bush to have, uh, and especially being a guy who, you know, he's played primarily second base. I know he's also gotten time in the outfield uh, this season, and he's got the ability to play over at first. He's versatile there, but adding the power is a big element. Yeah, no, it's huge. I mean, the, the thing about Michael Bush is that he's always been Offense first. He's a hitter friendly. You're a, he's a hitting necessary, really, prospect, if you want to put it that way. You talked about him being second base, first base, now some outfield. Uh, there might be some third base also mixed in there just because the Dodgers need to find a spot for him somewhere. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that's going to kind of shake out. Uh, but he's hitting. And I think a big reason of this right now, and the, the only word of caution I would give to this is that he's repeating the double-A level. He played 107 games for Tulsa last year. He had an 870 OPS. He had 20 homers in those 107 games. The power already played in the Texas League. Um, what he's doing now is proving that he probably shouldn't have been back there to begin the year, but the Dodgers right now don't really need infield help. I mean, it's just kind of crazy to look at who they have right now in the infield. Uh, obviously, Trey Turner is there. Freddie Freeman, they just signed as a first baseman, so 
Michael Bush, if you want to say he's not a second baseman and should maybe move over to first, okay. But Freddie Freeman has <laughs> signed a long-term deal there, so that's not going to happen. Um, Max Muncy is now their DH, essentially, because the DH is an option for the Dodgers, but they also have Gavin Lux. Um, they're trying to find playing time for him as he seems to really be coming into his own at last. He's still only 24 years old. Uh, so the Dodgers have options. They, they can kind of let Michael Bush do. Uh, again, what I was saying with Espino is that I expect him to be in AAA in a few weeks' time. I, I expect Bush to be there even quicker at this point. His eight home runs are second most in all of AA. Um, he's getting on the older side himself for that level. He's 24, so he's roughly the same age as Gavin Lux is right now himself. Um, I, I just think he needs the challenge of AAA. Now, AAA for him is the Pacific coast league. And that's obviously a hitters league. So we could see the power certainly continue there and who knows the Dodgers might have themselves a really good problem as they typically do. It seems like every year um, with another major league ready bat in Michael Bush by June or July, and they have to make some tough decisions. Who knows? There could be injuries along the way. They may need to tap into their depth and he could get meaningful at bats for them. Um, but the fact that the power is playing right now, it's an above average hit tool anyways. He's going to need it because he's not really that fast. He's not really that good of a defender. Um, all the other tools are basically 45s, but the hit and the power are at least 55. We're getting close to maybe a 60 on the power side. Uh, and yet again, here we are talking about the Dodgers and trying to find a place for one of their gifted hitting prospects. Maybe he's trade fodder uh, come early August, but right now, they're going to let him mash a double A and hopefully he gets to see OKC uh, pretty soon. All right. And strike three this week is a big one. Adley Rutschman has returned to a professional field with the Aberdeen Ironbirds. Adley Rutschman came out of spring training, the number two prospect in baseball, uh, with an injury that limited him um, to a later start to the season. He's only gotten a couple of games in so far with Aberdeen at high A. He's got just one hit through his first six at bats. He's got a walk as well. Um, but obviously, we know what Adley Rutschman is uh, able to do, is capable of doing, and will do at some point this season. It's big obviously for the Orioles to get him back in action uh he is the biggest piece in that rebuilding puzzle for Baltimore right now uh but we talked a little bit about him last week um it's exciting for Orioles fans a franchise that has not a lot to be excited about in recent years to finally get Adley Rushman back on the field for 2022 yeah and, and it's not only going to be him also at Aberdeen DL Hall I believe is slated to start on Friday yes, as he comes back from his own injury issues DL Hall has a longer history of injury problems. So it seems like the Orioles are taking it especially slow with him and, and wanting to build him up. But that's amazing to get those guys both back. Um, if you're sitting there at home wondering why are they at Aberdeen, the answer is basically Aberdeen was at home. Um, and the Orioles have maybe the most tightly knit minor league system right now, just in terms of where their low A, high A, double A, and AAA teams are. They wanted those guys to be kind of close to the area. Um, Aberdeen played at home this week, so it just seemed to work out really well. Uh, but there's no bones about it. A healthy Adley Rutschman is basically majorly ready. Um, he's at least AAA ready, as we saw at the end of last year. Uh, so I expect him to be in with Norfolk pretty soon, matching up once again with Grayson Rodriguez, who we talked about last week, uh, you and I, Tyler. But these first two games, he's looked healthy. Uh, he played... Catcher yesterday, he got, he got to hit a double. He walked uh, in, I think it was three plate appearances. He started at DH here on Wednesday. Um, so they're getting him some time in. He got four at-bats there, expanding the workload a little bit. Expect him to, you know, maybe DH, maybe 
catch a little bit. Um, but by the time he gets to Norfolk, he should be fully ready, uh, fully up to speed. And yeah, it's, it's only going to be a matter of time at that point before both him and Grayson Rodriguez are in Baltimore. And if DL Hall looks just as good on Friday, maybe we're talking about him adding to that Baltimore mix. And hopefully this O's team can really turn a corner because I, I thought this could be the year for them. They didn't really make the moves in the offseason to do that. But if those three guys make it to the major leagues this year and establish them as establish themselves as major leaguers going into 2023. The Orioles should be a much improved team next year and um, be making investments in, to become a much better team and to surround those guys with even more talent. Well, uh, hey, man, enjoy Somerset. And also, I hope you had a good time in Somerset. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I hope I also had a good time in Somerset. Um, I, I'm sure. I too it's, hope it all went well. Yeah. The Patriots have been fantastic in, in helping out with this, and I still get a kick out of the fact that the Patriots are a Yankees affiliate. Yeah. And they crack that joke several times on the broadcast. We'll see. Maybe they kick me out by the third inning if I keep saying that. Um, but, yeah, should be a should be a very fun game. And like I said, this is just the start. We're going to be doing one of these a month. Uh, so keep them peeled for what our game of the month is going to be in May. And uh, with that, we'll step aside. Josh Jackson joins the show ahead, and we're back to wrap it up. Coming up next. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghost of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was a historical fact. The others are just a part of my act. <laughs> in the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A, the Provo Silver Haulers. B, the Appleton Papermakers. C, the Hollywood Producers. You couldn't have drawn it up any better if you read between the lines and picked B, the Appleton Papermakers, who could fill a book with their exploits in four iterations in parts of six decades. Rolling out in the Wisconsin State League of 1891, the Wisconsin-Illinois League from 1909 to 1914, and in another Wisconsin State League over two stints in the 1940s and 50s, the papermakers were busy as beavers as representatives of the largest of the Badger States, Fox Cities. Appleton's paper industry dates back to the middle of the 19th century, and to this day, a visitor to Appleton can, before seeing a Midwest League game hosted by the High A Wisconsin Timber Rattlers, pay a visit to the Paper Discovery Center and learn about the rich history of papermaking in the town. 
but you probably won't learn there about how Stormy Hawgriever rushed Shumway and Crazy Schmidt battled like heck to get the papermakers of 1891 into second place behind the Marinette's Lumber Shovers. Not quite 20 years later, a new team tried to turn the page as the papermakers. In 09, Appleton's first entry to the Wisconsin-Illinois League didn't manage to upset the apple cart, <laughs> finishing behind former Ghosts of the Miners' favorite the Green Bay Bays and the Madison Senators, but in 1910, the papermakers reamed them all, with James Earl Ike McCauley, soon to be a big leaguer with Pittsburgh, leading the way on offense, and Michael Murphy, their ace on the mound. But the papermakers, for all their longevity, turned out to be a bit of a paper tiger. Aww. The 19 and 10 title was the only one the papermakers could print, even as they returned in 1940, 26 years after the crumpling of the Wisconsin-Illinois League. The new papermakers gave it a good rip in three seasons before a break for the war, but came up blank. And, resuming after the war, never got beaten to a pulp, but never finished above fifth from 1946 through 1953 when the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee, which wilted the well-being of Wisconsin's minor league scene. In 1954, the WSL was no more. And that's how the papermakers folded. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these peripatetic pros played far and wide in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Warren Wanderers. B. The Tacoma Travelers. C. The Roanoke Ramblers. Want to know the answer? Take a hike. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is doing some spring cleaning. And he's trying to throw me out. Saying goodbye on this week's episode of the show before the show. MILB.TV is where you can catch all the top talent in minor league baseball. Sam, what are you watching on Mill TV this weekend slash next week? Um, so, yeah, so looking forward to next week. Uh, there is a matchup between Jacksonville and Memphis. The game will, will be played in Memphis. Um, bringing up that game because Nolan Gorman, again, is turning on the power. He obviously had that stretch that we talked about uh, earlier this month on the podcast. Uh, he continues to hit home runs. He has two homers today on Wednesday when we're recording this. That puts him in a tie for the minor league lead. Um, maybe by the time you guys hear this, he'll have hit more. Maybe by the time you guys hear this, he'll have played his way to St. Louis. Who knows? It, he seems to really be knocking on the door there for the Cardinals. Um, but all the pieces are there for him. Um, Juan Yepes is another really promising slugger for the Redbirds. Um, he seems to be catching fire here at late in April. So a lot of firepower in that Memphis Redbirds lineup. Um, one thing to note, it is Jacksonville, which means Max Meyer could pitch. He's right now slated to pitch on April 30th. So it means if he does pitch in the Jacksonville at Memphis series, it will probably be in the latter half of the week. Just keep an eye out for that and see when he's going to go. But Max Meyer versus Nolan Gorman. That's going to be must-see MILB TV for sure. So make sure you tune in for that one. And I'm sure we're going to promote the heck out of the game when it comes along, uh, whenever that will be. Again, probably later in the week. Uh, if he's starting here on the 30th as scheduled. But it should be a really fun one there in Memphis. Tyler, what you, you're on the other coast. You're going uh, to the Northwest League, correct? I am. And I am going to the home of our uh, – 
interview subject for uh, this week's episode of the show before the show, Andy Dunn, team president for the Vancouver Canadians, but I'm actually not doing it for Vancouver, sorry, Vancouver, uh, but rather for the Seattle Mariners affiliate, the Everett Aqua Sox, which will be on the road at Vancouver starting next Tuesday, May 3rd, because uh, that's a fun Everett team, and they have one of the best prospects in baseball, number 11 overall, shortstop Noel V. Marte, and the reason I'm recommending this one is because Everett does not have milled TV for home games. So getting a chance to catch Noel V. Marte on MILB.TV, uh, you got to wait for him to be on the road to do that. So he and his mates will be uh, in Vancouver. They will travel north of the border from Tuesday through Sunday, and you can catch all of those games at MILB.TV. And uh, that will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. It was a fun one. And uh, big thanks to Sam for swinging through in his, uh, in his week of travels. He's also an uncle yet again. Uh, with a, a new niece who has arrived. Congrats, buddy. Congrats to your sister and uh, your brother-in-law and the whole family. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Nora, Nora Louise, uh, who I will be meeting on Friday, and I'm very, very excited. Um, yeah, I'm a thruncle now, which is a new experience. It's crazy. It's crazy. You have surpassed me. I'm only uh, a <laughs> twung, twunkle, a dunkle. Well, see, see, that's the thing. People have been congratulating me and being like, oh, that's great. You have three yeah. of them now. I did nothing. I love I that. absolutely nothing. I love yeah. Oh, congratulations on your nephew. I'm like, yeah, I, I did not accomplish anything, but thank you. I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of my complete lack of work to have made any of this happen. Yes. I, fantastic. To be clear, I am very proud of my sister and my brother-in-law. Yeah. Uh, it, my sister did wonderfully. Um, obviously, they're seasoned pros at this, at this point, but uh, all three kids are, are great and they got to meet each other today and everything seemed to go well there and everybody's super excited. So pretty cool stuff. Uh, well, enjoy it on Friday and all of you uh, enjoy your weekend. Big thanks for tuning into the show before the show uh, for Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week.